0: Well, some of you are going to recognize a quote I'm about to uh, state, um, a quote that was made by the Dr. Martin Luther King years ago, uh, a quote that, that um, has kind of been uh, memorialized because it shows or it explains, defines Dr. King's um, understanding of what greatness is. Um, and the quote goes like this. He says, not everyone can be famous, but everyone can be great. Because greatness is defined by service. That's worthy of of reading one more time. That is, not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great because greatness is defined by service. Now what I love about that saying or that statement is he makes a really clear distinction between fame on the one hand and greatness on the other which is a really important distinction for us to hold into our minds because we often confuse those two. And we think that without fame, there is no greatness. Fame is nothing more than public acknowledgement, public recognition, public memory of something great. That's what fame is. And oftentimes, we equate greatness with whether or not the world notices, appreciates, or acknowledges a great work, whether there's an achievement, and we as Christians sometimes blend those two together, even when we talk about doing great things for the Lord. I remember the college days, college, uh, uh, Christian college campus, and you know we had theology majors, and you had the, um, the preaching majors, and all kinds of different majors in the whole Bible program. And, and I think all of us wanted to do great things for the Lord. And, and um, what emerged in our minds when we thought of greatness were, well, theology majors they wanted to be like luther or calvin or they wanted to be like a, a john edwards or the latest wayne grudem it's like that i hope i'm great like like that or the preaching majors would say i want to be like a charles spurgeon or a george whitfield and the evangelists would want to say you yeah, i want to be like the wesleys or, or those who are missionaries or think i want to be like a you know, william Carey or like a simeon or like a carmichael and you kind of have these heroes in your mind and you're hoping that in your lifetime you're going to leave a mark like they left And what we've unwittingly done in those times is attached public recognition, acknowledgement, and remembrance to our work. And that blends those two together of greatness and fame. And um, hidden in that blending is, I think, vain glory. Let me tell you that um, most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, are not going to do things that people are going to remember at least not beyond six generations. They're not going to write documentaries on our lives. They're not going to put it on on a history channel. They're not going to write biographies of our lives. Why? Because most of what we do in this room, including myself, is considered by the world to be somewhat ordinary, even mundane. Now, you think about what you do in your daily life. Think about what I do in my daily life. Most of it seems, from worldly standards, as insignificant, um, mundane and what i've called ordinary you know alarm goes off you get up take a shower um you go and maybe you have a a time of private worship with the lord have some coffee read the paper have breakfast say goodbye to the kids and wife kiss them move on do your work eight nine ten twelve hour day um at the end the whistle blows you get in your car and you come home um you're already exhausted but maybe you help out with dinner make dinner clean up after dinner And then maybe help kids with homework. If they're small group, you go to small group. Maybe on Sundays, you come to church and then help feed the homeless on Sunday night. And then it starts all over again. And then again and again. It just kind of loops and loops and loops. That's life. The basic fabric of everyday life is really ordinary. It is in my life, and I know it is in your life. And the world, by and large, is not going to remember that stuff. As I said, six generations from now, six, five maybe, your name probably will not be remembered other than in a family tree or a picture in some shoebox somewhere. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I really came here to get pumped up, Dan, to get a little encouragement in life, and you basically said I'm not going to amount to anything um, based upon what you just said. Nobody's going to remember what I do, and I want to leave a legacy. Yeah, that's pretty much what I said. That from all worldly standards, from worldly standards, very important qualification, your life is not going to be remembered. But I want to say to everyone in this room, including my own ears, in fact, I, if I could, I would shout it, that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they put out a documentary on their life. It doesn't matter if your name appears in a history book that your great great grandchildren read. It doesn't matter if they remember your name beyond five, six generations. It doesn't matter. And I'll tell you why. Because the f- pursuit of what matters in this life and in this world ultimately boils down to vainglory. It's chasing the wind. And for the few, in terms of percentage-wise, the very few who don't do become great, apart from doing things in the name of the Lord, what is great in this world will, will be almost negligible in the next the Bible inverts what the, what, what the world thinks is great and says, you know what, in the new creation, it's going to be a little a fine print, tiny footprint or footnote in the grand scheme of redemption. So don't get caught up in what's great in this world. Rather, let greatness be defined by the scripture itself. And I want to tell you through 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in view of the resurrection, why your life and your work, as mundane or arbitrary as it might seem, why it matters. And from that, to kind of create a definition of what greatness is in the mind of God and to live within that reality. Well, as I said, this is a, a great chapter on the resurrection from the dead, which is still future for us when Jesus comes and blows a trumpet and, and the dead in Christ rise. So um, verse 58 has to be read in that light. After talking about the resurrection, he gives this final exhortation of the chapter to the people of God. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immo- immovable. And that's a good word, by the way, for our time when the winds of philosophy and morality are blowing this way and that way. He's saying, stay true, stay, stay rooted to the same thing. Don't give in, don't bend. But then he goes on to say, and this is what we're going to focus on, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Those last two statements, always abounding in the work of the Lord and knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, boils down the what of the Christian life and the why of the Christian life in very general ways. What we're to be doing in this life as we get up in the morning, as we go to sleep at night and everything in between, what we're to be doing and why we're to do it. That first part, the part that's underlined behind me is what... I thought of as the kind of the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. Now, if a female were writing this, she would have said salad and tea or something of the Christian life. But, you know, this is coming from a man's perspective. This is the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. That we are to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, for sake of brevity, um, let's just acknowledge that the word always speaks to frequency and the word abounding speaks to quantity. That is when it says always, it's talking about constant. And when it's talking about abounding, it's talking about flourishing or overflowing. Those are alternate translations of that word. So that we are to be constantly overflowing in the work of the Lord. In other words, he's saying that it's not to be one of those things that we do on Sunday or maybe a Wednesday. It's not just when we show up at a a soup kitchen or a Bible study or to sing on Sunday morning. That's not always, that's sometimes abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, always, constantly abounding in the work of the Lord. It's a constant thing we're to be doing, overflowing, flourishing with the working of, uh, uh, works of God. Now at this point, you could take out a little mental uh, like uh, card, uh, assessment card and say, okay, how does my life relate to, or how does it stack up next to always abounding in the work of the Lord? You know, at the top it says, always. Maybe next down it says frequently. Next down it says infrequently. Um, Maybe near the bottom it's seldom, and the bottom one is never at all. Now just take a second. Based upon what's underlined here, would you say, or at what degree does your life always abound in the work of the Lord? How, How would you mark yourself? Okay, have you done it mentally? If you haven't, you're just looking at me for no reason. (laughs) All right. Put the mental card away. I think this, what I just said, the always abounding is fairly straightforward and clear. Whether we live it out or not is a different story. The next part, however, is the ambiguous part. Namely, what constitutes work of the Lord? We're always to be abounding... In the work of the Lord. What what, what is the work of the Lord that that he says we're always to be abounding in? Now let me tell you what most Christians that I know think of when they think of the work of the Lord. They limit the category of work of the Lord to things that are churchy. That is, preaching, teaching, praying, worshiping, singing, feeding the homeless. Things that are largely attached to the church building and formalized ministry. That's what we have been mistrained to think is work of the Lord. Now, I want to go on and say and qualify that those things of preaching, teaching, praying, and worshiping, seeing and feeding homeless are all important, indeed crucial, and fundamental to the expansion of God's kingdom. So you don't want to undermine those things. But they are but a part of the working of the Lord. And to say that this is all there is to the work of the Lord... It misunderstands the thoughts of Paul, the thoughts of the Bible. It strangles the mission of the church, and it creates a whole lot of guilt on people who don't fit into those categories very well. Rather, in mind of Paul, mind of the Bible, the work of the Lord includes, and you've heard me say this before, but this is a drum that has to be keep on beating because there's so much bad thinking out there that you have to kind of work it out with repetition. Um, with good thinking, that the Bible declares every aspect of the Christian life, all work, to be the work of the Lord. At least it should be. And to cement that into texts themselves, let me back up five chapters in the same letter that Paul wrote, where he says this. He says, "...whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God." He says something similar in Colossians 3.17. "...whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus." Two times, he says, whatever you do, that's a phrase that is all-inclusive, nothing left out. And if you have any doubt that that phrase is not all-inclusive, it's followed up by do all and do everything. It's all supposed to be done in the name of the Lord, and, and it's all to be work for the Lord. And it should include comprehensively everything in the Christian life. Even to a slave, Paul says, Ephesians 6, 8, and he says it also in Colossians, I believe it's chapter 4, giving instructions to a a slave in the empire of Rome who had no rights, who had very little to offer anybody. He tells that slave to do his slave work as to the Lord. In other words, his slave work is his his work to to, to offer to the Lord. So we are to be always abounding, in the work of the Lord, which includes everything, but it is work that's to the Lord. And I believe what that means is um, that we are to offer the totality, the comprehensive nature of our working in life, we are to offer all all of it in worship response to all that God is for us in Jesus, past, present, and future. In other words, when the heart's eye... And this is what Christians need to do every day when the heart's eye is fixed on the fact that the almighty God wed himself to our pathetically frail flesh. And he walked in the shoes of unworthy people so that he might forgive us of our sins and take God's wrath that we deserved upon himself to rise to give us that forgiveness and then to promise us a whole new world, not just as servants of God, but sons and daughters. When the mind's eye continues to fix itself upon that great work, past, present, and future, that it calls forth this, this worship of life that's willing to say, I, I offer you my, my, my entire being and everything I do with my hands as, a, as an act of worship back to you, as imperfect as it may be. That is, we do it out of first recognizing and grasping what he's first done for us, and then we offer it to him, all of it, as worship. That's what it means to work for or to or in the Lord for his honor, his glory and a response to all that he's done motivated by our love for him and motivated by love for others. That's what it means. All life. It's easier to say that than to get that. I was thinking about, um, <laughs> all of the different works that people at Parkway do, at least in the minds that I know uh, in the minds, in my mind, what I know. And, and I had to write this down cause I couldn't memorize it. Um, These are some of the things that you do during the day. We do during the day. I want you to think about what you do. We have surgeons, dentists, nurses, techs, plumbers, doctors, electricians, contractors, drywallers, landscapers, pool builders, silver traders, oil refinery workers, wine distributors, educational administrators, secretaries, admins, teachers, maintenance workers, custodians, Butchers, hairstylists. We have lawyers, legal assistants, police officers, CHP officers, game wardens, prison guards, firemen, people in candy sales, people in tire sales, cosmetic sales, computer programmers, realtors, executives, accountants, financial planners, caseworkers, counselors, uh, military personnel, consultants, crane operators, bakers, full time moms, full time students, and I just so want to say, and a partridge in his pear tree. <laughs> And those are just the few that I know. There are such a vast array of different workings in this church family of things that you go and do every day, some in your home and some outside your home. And I believe that Paul would say that all of that, everything you do is to be worked to the Lord. Not just what you do on Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday, but, but all of that is to be offered up to him. Everything. Everything. That means that, that we have to readjust our thinking to recognize that whatever God has given to you to do, even if it's not something you're going to do all the time or, or in the future, maybe God will lead you to do something else, that that is God-sanctioned ministry, and that is God-sanctioned work for you to do with all of your might. It's sacred, provided it's not sinful. Sinful working is not sanctioned by the Lord. But whatever he's called you to do, that's what we're supposed to do. And to recognize it's supposed to be done in and for and to him because he has claimed it for himself. It's his work, and therefore it matters. It matters. So all of that, comprehensively, that is what we are to be always abounding in. And if, if that, that perspective can be taken to work with you, then it's going to make things different. I can see a guy sitting in, I I knew someone who did this one time, a lady. She used to go into a little tiny cubicle and her whole job was to take CPUs, little computer processing units, and stick them in the motherboards. That is the most boring job I've ever heard of. No offense if anybody would still do that. I think the robots do that now. Anyway, she would just stick them in, move them, stick them in, move them. That's what she'd do. But for her to recognize that, you know what? This isn't menial. This is what I do for the Lord because I love him because he first loved me so much. He's given me a job. And this is a way that I can serve in a loving way the greater community that uses computers. And so I'm just going to do this. And imagine somebody else walking in going, why are you smiling? That is the most menial task I've ever seen. And they say, because of who I do it for. Revolutionizes work. Now, that means... All of your working matters. But let me show you why it matters. That's the second part of this verse. We might call this the payoff of Christian work. That's the last part of the verse. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now that seems really easy to you. Let me just tell you, it's taken me a lot of years to try and figure out, and I still don't fully understand exactly what not in vain means, but I'm going to attempt a stab at it that I hope will encourage you. He's saying that, Again, always abounding in the work of the Lord, which is comprehensive of everything. And here is the motivational incentive, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, your work, and we are supposed to do work. We're just not supposed to do work to earn God's love. We're to do work as a response to God's love, which keeps it from being a works-based kind of God-approving religion. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. He uses that word vain four times with reference to his life and resurrection. Talks about the grace of God that was in him that was not in vain. In other words, it worked to its appointed end and it was not futile. It, it, it did have a point. He says that if the resurrection didn't happen, if the physical resurrection didn't happen, then faith is vain and our preaching is vain. In other words, pointless. What's the point if there is no resurrection? That's, that's why how he uses the word vain. And then here in verse 58, he talks about the fact that our working in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, it does have a point. Now we can, in this life, kind of uh, sympathize with people who do jobs that feel like there is no point. Uh, <laughs> what, what came to my mind is my wife just this last week. She, she had she cleaned the house, dusted, you know, dishes clean, put away, countertop scrubbed, the floors mopped. Just remember the family at Christmas left. <laughs> And all of the carpets are vacuumed and it just, it's just like everything's put back and there's a sense of, oh, you know, if rice feels good. Until 3, 310, 320, the kids come in from school. And it's like a nuclear kid bomb goes off and everything reverts, reverts back to the way it was. There's stuff on the floor, there's cracker crumbs, there's dishes in the sink. And, and one easily feels in that moment like, what's the point? What's the point of this all? It feels vain. It feels empty. It feels like it just doesn't count for anything. That's what, that's what it means for something to be vain. And Paul's telling us that our working, all of the stuff in this list that I read, of all the stuff you do, as, our, as, as, as ordinary and as menial as it may seem, it's not for nothing. And that's really important. You know, I can imagine uh, someone who works in a Raley's or a Safeway who has the night shift, who's going around restocking shelves, you know, crushed tomatoes and and diced tomatoes and making sure all the cans are labels forward and under the right label, you know, uh, for the benevolent reason of helping the shoppers who come in to find what they're looking for, thinking as they stack cans of beans and of, you know, potatoes, Thinking this doesn't really count. Like I want to do something that matters with my life. Meanwhile, they're stacking cans. I can see uh, someone who owns a a, a, or cleans carpets for a living, come into a house, carpets are dirty, and spend two or three hours cleaning the carpets, thinking all the while this doesn't really matter. They're going to call me back in six months, and it's going to be dirty all over again. This doesn't have any eternal value. Don't tell me that people don't think that way. I know they think that way. It's easy to think, well, this doesn't really have any enduring value, Cleaning carpets or stacking cans like like a pastor or deacon or elder who is responsible for doing churchy things and doing what I perceive to be eternal things. My life doesn't seem like it matters. And I think Paul would say to you, you are absolutely 100% wrong. It does, the stacking cans in my name for me as an expression of love does matter to me. It's not in vain. It's not pointless. And you might say, can you, where are you going to find that in a text, Dan? Well, this is a general one. But just for, just for a second here, just walk back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, which I, I put on the pre- previous screen. Or he tells the slave doing his menial task, which would have been the stacking the cans or polishing brass or silver or banging carpets or mopping floors, says to him that the slave should do his slave work knowing, same word, knowing, payoff, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. In other words, even arbitrary, mundane, seemingly arbitrary, mundane, ordinary things that we do that don't seem to have any eternal significance, he says, comes back to you if you're doing it in a, in a, a, a motivated by love into the name of the Lord. It comes back to you. What you do in this life with your hands and your feet and your words and your computer board matters not only here but in the next life. It comes back to us in the new creation, the resurrection. And I can't think of anybody who could state it better then some of you will know the name N.T. Wright, but he's regarded by many to be one of the few greatest Christian scholars and theologians of our time. And he writes it this way, and it's worthy of quoting. He says, you, talking to Christians, fathers of Jesus, who get this, you are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support of one's fellow human beings and, for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, animals in creation, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, there's, here's the churchy things which he's including. Every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. It's much bigger than we ever thought. That somehow, in one sense... It does all come with us in the sense that God, by his resurrecting, albeit mysterious power, brings it back. Imagine each day going to work recognizing I am investing in the new creation. What I do matters. Because as Paul told the slave, God will bring it back to you. It does matter. When I um, read this, I... Trying to think, how, I, how does that work, Lord? You know, what came to my mind, and albeit this is a this is a imperfect analogy, and by the way, all analogies are imperfect when it comes to ana- analogies of biblical and spiritual things. But for those of you who have kids, you're going to understand this. I, I, there's moments when my children have done things um, up in their room, writing stuff, coloring stuff, um, unsolicited by me, just spontaneously self initiated to be able to show. Love to their dad and mom. And and my daughter was really good at this. Um, She'd be up in a room and I'd be down doing something and she would come up and she'd hand me this piece of paper and say, Dad, this is for you. And, you know, open it up and, and it's something that she colored, you know, it's a picture. And then she'd go on to explain what the picture was with mountains and tents and, and a bunch of people. I always figure out who I was because I'm the easiest one to draw. Just a circle of two eyes, that's it. So who's that? Uh, that? That's you, Dad. I knew that that was me, actually. And who am I holding hands with? And, and over the top would be things like, I love you, Daddy. Right? Now, you know, sentimental, but, you know, it's an expression of her love and desire. And it wasn't a Michelangelo piece. Or a Monet, it was a billion times better than that. Because it's an expression of her love for her father. And some of those things I've stacked away because I can't stand apart with them because they are tokens of the expression of that love. Others I've had to get rid of because you can't save everything, right? Our father in heaven, I, I have to believe who has worked in us a new creation heart that at varying degrees is learning to love him. That when he sees his child stacking cans in a grocery store, thankful, thank you for the job, and I want this to please you, and I also want it to help others who are going to come in and see these cans lined up and maybe not appreciate me, but appreciate the fact that they're in the right place. It's a loving thing to do. I can't help but think that the Father says, I can't throw that away. I I can't throw that away. I'm going to keep it. That work, God's work in the heart of a child offering up in worship their work to him. I see the Father saying, I'm going to keep it. And in the new creation, he's going to be able to say, here it is. Um, I couldn't stand apart with it because I don't throw away my works. Even the ones that aren't Picasso's, or yeah, leave Picasso out, just Michelangelo, because they're from you. In that way, friends, family, this is our work is not in vain. You know what? Even if our names are forgotten, five, six generations from now, it doesn't matter, because our names will not be, and our works will not be forgotten by our heavenly Father, cherished by Him, because they're His works, and He loves His works, and He loves His children. So as you march into 2013. Let that fill your mind and heart. It does matter. Do it for him in gratitude for all he's done. Do it knowing this is not in vain. And when you do it that way, you honor him and you glorify him and it will come back to you. And that should be our motivation. Not being great in this world's standards, but just doing what he's called us to do here and now, knowing that he is the one who makes things that seem ordinary extraordinary in the new creation. So um, maybe just take a moment and just ask the Lord, Lord, give me this perspective. Help me to live with this perspective. Help me to grasp that my job is actually sanctioned. It's sacred to you. And to, to do it unto you in response to all that you've done for us. Will you just take a moment and just ask the Lord to help you grab, grab this perspective and this truth